Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the sunny day today, Father. A little cool, but Lord, it's a refreshing break from the warm weather we usually see in this part of the country. And we thank you, Father, for the, the chance to be in a Christmas spirit. The weather does that for us, Father. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder every year of the birth of your son. It makes no difference, Father, if the day we have chosen to celebrate is the actual day for those things you know and, and have reserved to yourself. But we do know, Father, it is important to remind ourselves on a regular basis of the importance of the coming of Christ. That though we now have salvation by faith and we rest in that, it is so easy, Father, to take for granted all that was required to put us in that place of righteousness before you thank you lord that the lord came that he was born in the form of man that he lived a life that was an exemplary one sinless in all respects thank you father that he came in humble circumstances so that we would know that you do not measure things as men do you do not value what is seen and we ask father that you would help us to remember the the great sacrifice that it was that christ would lower himself in that way For our sake. Thank you, Father, that this season brings such joy to children and to family and friends. For many ways, Father, we can use these these gatherings and these times together to remind each other of the importance of who Christ is. Thank you for the chance to witness under such favorable circumstances. Let us not let them go to waste. And as we learn from your word this morning, Father, thank you for the wisdom it imparts. Thank you for the courage it gives us to follow you. Thank you for the correction it offers so that we wouldn't go astray. Let us listen with ears that would hear, Father, hearts that would obey, minds, Father, that would consider these things carefully. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're almost done with the chapter on marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A quick review for what we've studied in the first two weeks of this long chapter. We looked at Paul starting with a recommendation that if you are married as a believer, then you must hold to those vows for life, that there is no divorce in marriage. And he said, if you were in a marriage in which one of the members of the marriage comes to faith, leaving the other one without faith, you then again must honor the marriage vows. But if that unbeliever is forced away by your faith, you may let them leave. You don't have to chase after them, as it may be, to to hold the marriage together. For it would be better to serve God without that burden. But then again, we said that is not a divorce. And then from there, we looked outside of the book briefly last week at the fact that we are not to be marrying someone who is an unbeliever. It is more important that we serve Christ than that we have the marriage we want. If the two are in opposition, we always choose the Lord. And then finally, Paul says, in light of all of this counsel, he said, don't seek to change who you are simply as a matter of coming to Christ. And that's the final section of chapter seven that we're in today. It's a bridge from that last thought that a Christian is not to seek some different station in life simply as a result of receiving salvation. God, Paul said, saved us for reasons of his own. So we don't need to construct some new idealized Christian lifestyle thinking that is a requirement if we're to please God. We only need to live a spirit-led life if we're going to please God. And our station in life is secondary. Paul stated this principle in the last verse we looked at last week, in verse 24. And it's a bridge into the last section of the letter. He said in verse 24, Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Paul was addressing this 
unhealthy concern within the church that said, now that I'm a believer, well, I guess I shouldn't be married or I guess I should be married or I guess I should divorce or I guess I should chase after my spouse and make him or her into a believer and so on and so on. And Paul's saying, no, you're missing the point. You're to remain with God. And with, in that sense, means in alignment with his will, in connection with his call on your life, doing as he's expected you to do, in the condition in which he found you when he brought you to faith in the first place. Now, he's not saying, and we looked at this last week, he was not saying you can't ever change anything about your life. Someday you're going to retire. If you're a student, you're not going to be a student forever. There are some aspects to who you are that will naturally change, and that's to be expected. But what he's saying is our coming into salvation through faith in Christ on the cross doesn't come with some automatic expectation that we upend our life in a hundred ways and strike off in some brand new direction. That is not an expectation. In fact, we said last week that would go essentially against the call of God for if he knew who you were and where you were when he calls you, there might be, and there probably is, some logic behind why he waited until then to bring you into faith. Maybe he wanted you to be a student of the word in a place that needed someone with that knowledge. Maybe he wanted you to be a light in a particular place of darkness. Don't run from that place. Don't run from that occupation. Don't run from the marriage. Let God sort it out. And we have that confidence Because we know all the important issues of our life, spiritually speaking, have already been dealt with on the cross. Your sin, already paid for on the cross. Your salvation, already assured by the promises of God. Your resurrected and sinless body, on its way. It's just somewhere in the mail. It comes someday. Those issues aren't being improved or fixed or controlled or assured by changing things about your earthly life. Those things have been settled. That confidence lets us now live in such a way that we please God wherever we are. There's a great story that illustrates this principle of resting in the assurances of God. There's a story of a wealthy man who moved into a small town. And this man was a man of some means, so he preferred to go to a barbershop and get his face shaved. He didn't want to do it himself anymore. He had the money. So he comes to this town and finds the barber shop, realizing this barber happened to be a woman named Grace. And as he walks in, he asks the woman if she would give him a shave, and, and she does. And then he asks how much it is, and she says it's $25. Now, even for a man of money, he felt like that was a bit steep for a shave. And he thinks, well, maybe, maybe I won't come here as often as I thought, maybe every other day or something. Nevertheless, he pays her, and he leaves. And the next morning when he wakes up, he finds his face just as smooth as it was the day before. And he thought, well, I guess that was a $25 shave because that's pretty smooth. Next day, he wakes up a second day and he finds his face still no need of a shave. Now he's pretty surprised. He's, he's struck by just how well this lady shaves his face. And by the third day, still no stubble. And now he's perplexed because this doesn't seem natural anymore. And he decides he's going to go back to the barbershop and ask some questions of the lady. And on this particular day, as he comes in, he finds that the pastor of the local church is in the barbershop waiting to have his hair cut. So he strikes up a conversation with the pastor as he waits to talk to the barber. And he asks the pastor, do you know why my face has stayed so smooth after three days since I had the shave? And the pastor just kindly explained, friend, you were shaved by grace. And once shaved, always shaved. Yeah. If you're new to this church, I just want you to know that's pretty typical. That's pretty much what you get here. You didn't miss the point, did you? The permanence of our faith and our salvation underlies everything Paul is teaching in this chapter. So you can have confidence to remain in your present condition for as long as God requires. Why? Because our condition has no impact on our salvation. So from this point, Paul now addresses the final issue in marriage. So we've talked about a lot of different things. 
There's still one left unaddressed. He actually alluded to this last one early in the chapter. He made a passing reference to it, though he didn't fully explain it till now. And that last issue is the issue of remaining unmarried, of remaining a single person in serving Christ. Again, he said earlier, I wish that you would be as I am in that respect, but he never explained why. Now he does. Verses 25 through 28. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Well, do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Well, then do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. At about this point, I should institute the no elbow rule. If you're doing this to your spouse, you need to stop that right now because we all get it already. All right. So as he did earlier in the letter, Paul qualifies his instructions. Last week, we noticed there was a point in which he said, not the Lord, but I, in reference to an instruction he was about to deliver. And we looked at those points last week and we said he wasn't saying this is less scripture. He was saying that these are not instructions that the Lord himself personally expressed at any point in his years on earth. But Paul was expressing them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here he does a similar kind of thing. He makes a a similar kind of qualification. But this one's even different from the past ones because he says not only is this not something Jesus said, but he says even more than that, he says, I'm just giving you an opinion at this point. What Paul is saying is the Christian is not bound by this counsel if we choose not to follow it. This is not a command. But because it is scripture, it is still wise and it is still trustworthy counsel. So there's a difference between something that is wise and trustworthy and something that is required. Something can be wise, something can be trustworthy, and yet not right for everyone under every circumstances. And that's what he is saying here. The counsel Paul gives is that Christians not seek to change their marital status one way or the other in view of the present distress, he says. So in other words, if you are unmarried, it may be best to remain that way, Paul says. But, of course, if you are married already, well, then certainly do not violate your marriage vows. Do not seek divorce. Paul's counsel that it might be better not to be married does not give you permission to divorce your spouse. That should be obvious. But it still goes to the central issue of remain as you are. Do not become distracted by such things as your marital status or even the prospect of entering into marriage when there are eternal concerns to consider. So for the one who chooses to ignore Paul's counsel, the one who says, you know, I want marriage. Paul says, well, you're not sinning. And he makes it very clear that there's absolutely nothing wrong with a husband taking a wife or a wife taking a husband. Absolutely nothing wrong. God invented marriage and he is encouraged through the word that men and women would be married. Paul is not countering that. So the opportunity to marry itself is never an act of sin. But what Paul is saying, and he says it as an opinion, not as a command, is something that comes out of a personal concern that he has for every believer in light of, he says, the present distress or a world situation. He knew that the burdens and the responsibilities of marriage adds a kind of stress factor in any circumstance in which there is persecution, trial brought upon the church. And he says, I'm just trying to spare you my brethren, my beloved, I'm trying to spare you the kind of sorrow that I know you will experience if you choose to marry under the present circumstances. So as we hear Paul's words, you and I are immediately left with the question of how applicable is this to us today? 
Take note that Paul says his counsel is based on the sober assessment of the present distress. The present distress. That refers to persecution that Paul and other Christians knew in his day. Present means ongoing. Believers in Paul's day were beginning to suffer at the hands of the Jews. They had been feeling that pressure almost from the beginning. And Paul also knew by the inspiration of the Spirit that there would be a day in the near future when it would come from Rome. And it would be empire-wide, systematic persecution of Christians. And once that persecution took hold within the church, as it did under Nero, then Christian families were subjected to some of the most unimaginable torture and martyrdom you and I would ever want to consider. Families were crucified together. Families were led into the Colosseum and fed to wild animals as spectators for it. Families were burned alive at the stake in a practice that was known as the Roman candle. And Paul knew that families who come to faith and are put to these tests because of their faith are going to suffer in horrendous ways. And friends, it's bad enough to suffer alone under those circumstances. We all understand that. But to be a father or a mother... Or to watch helplessly as your spouse or your children endure that kind of treatment is another level of misery all of its own. And Paul understood that dilemma. And so he counsels the church in love. You can avoid such a dilemma if you remain single. Never mind the pressure that these situations place on you as a Christian, for there was an escape offered to these Christians if they would renounce Christ. Now ask yourself, how strong would you be in the face of one of those moments asked to renounce Christ on the one hand or watch your children suffer on the other? This is the dilemma, Paul says, in light of the present distress that he wanted to preserve the church from. But we know this is not counsel Paul expected every Christian to follow, nor did he wish for every Christian to follow, because, first of all, not every Christian finds himself or herself living under the same situation Paul did, under the present Distress. It's not universally true that all Christians are placed in those kinds of circumstances. And thankfully, that's true, right? Not all Christians experience the kind of persecution Paul experienced. Not all Christians are faced with persecution at the same level or in the same place or at the same time. Paul's churches were under those kinds of threats. And we know many in today's world are under these kinds of threats in North Korea, China, some of the Arab nations, certainly. And in a future day, we know that the most of the world will be enveloped in this kind of thing as tribulation takes hold. All right? Those things will happen. But in the meantime, there are many churches today and here and elsewhere in which we are not experiencing these things. We are in relatively peaceful circumstances. Our faith is not putting us in the situation where I have to choose between my testimony and my child's life. And thankfully, that's true. And so Paul's counsel could not be a mandate for all Christians, for we don't all face those circumstances. It's an opinion based on circumstance. There's a second reason we know Paul wouldn't want this for every Christian. The simple fact that if Christians never marry, Christians never have little babies. And if Christian families don't exist, then Christianity is at risk in a sense. I mean, we know God's sovereignty can bring faith regardless of whether or not we reproduce in our families. But it's also evident that God is working through the normal process of human reproduction. And in typical form, he favors the children of believers when he chooses to bring the gift of faith. His desire to use the faith of parents to influence the hearts of children. So if God were to insist that we all remain single, that doesn't take the church very far in its plan to cover the earth, does it? It makes it a lot more difficult. So we can safely assume that we do not go against God's purposes when we marry and have our families, etc. And so if we choose to marry, that's fine. But what if we feel a call in our hearts as a younger person 
one who has yet to marry. And that call is to travel to dangerous places. That call is to be a minister in locations in which persecution is a very real threat. What if that's a burden God has placed on our heart? And we know that to be true. If we add to that burden, the burden of a family, of a spouse, the responsibility of caring for our spouse, of concerning ourselves with our spouse's desires, of putting time and energy into that relationship, of being constrained by our concern for their well-being, well, then we have become distracted by an earthly connection that competes now for our opportunity to serve Christ in the call that he's put on our life. Let me reiterate, we do not sin if we still choose to marry. Paul has made that clear. But we sacrifice. We make a compromise. We divide our energies and our time. And therefore, our ability to serve God is lessened. Perhaps to a degree that there's some kind of reward or some kind of opportunity or some kind of mission that is now outside our reach, when before maybe it was within our reach. You see, we can't be naive about this. There are trade-offs. There's only so much time. There's only so much energy. There's only so much opportunity. We, we don't get it all. You know, the, the feminist call that I want to have it all, we've, I think, seen that now in society. It's just not true. You can do a lot of things, women, men, men, but there's always a cost. There's always something not getting done. There's always something being put aside. You can't have it all, literally, and no different in this case. So the burdens of marriage may come to outweigh the benefits of companionship for those who have a distinct call on their life to be in harm's way for the sake of the gospel or for those who simply live in places in which they can't escape such trial. And therefore, we must keep eyes for eternity and make a sound decision in these matters. Just as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, speaking to a protege, a man who Paul was developing to replace him in that area, Paul says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. To some degree, that's true for all of us. But if we have a unique call in our life that puts us in harm's way, Paul says, in light of that present distress, it is better to remain without the connection of family to weigh us down. Still, we expect that many, if not most of us, will marry. That's a given. And it is our option. So should we take this course and should time and circumstance change for the worse, then we're going to have some difficult choices to make. And now in the next section, Paul explains how we are to respond to situations that are difficult if we have gone into them as a married couple. So how do we deal with them? Paul says in verses 29 through 35, Paul says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but One who is married is concerned about the things of the world for how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So Paul's advice to married couples begins with this curious reference 
to the days in which we live. And he says the times have been shortened. That's the premise. The premise for all of this advice is that the times have been shortened. The Greek word translated shortened is actually a fairly complex idea. And the words don't do it justice, at least not in my English version. The word can mean wrapped up or covered over. But the best way to think of this word in Greek is like the strings that draw together to close the mouth of a money bag or a money sack. That's the sense of the word in Greek. So you can imagine pulling the strings and the mouth of the bag closing up. So in that sense, it's been translated shortened, as in the strings shortening. But you get a better sense of it when you think of it more like the mouth of the bag tightening. Constriction. Think of it as opportunity closing and stress increasing. And constriction happening. All of these things are embedded in that word. So Paul's emphasizing the nature of the days in which we all live, both in his day and today, the days before Christ's return. The time until his return is growing shorter by the day, like a fuse burning to the end. And at the same time, the opening is closing. The opportunities are becoming smaller and smaller to do the work of the gospel. And the pressure is building. And those are all accurate descriptions of the period of time we know covers from Christ's first coming to his second coming, regardless of where we fall in that spectrum of time. These are all days Christians know to some degree, depending on where you live and what age you live in. We can't escape this reality. And though it will strike each of us a little differently because of where we live in history, nevertheless, we should all have the same thought in our mind. That is, that we have only so much time to serve Christ. The days are shortening. The opportunity is fleeting. The pressure is building. We can't afford a misstep with our time and our energy, our money, anything. It's all being judged It's all coming to a quick conclusion. And in light of all of that, Paul says that those who marry, those of us who choose to make that the lifestyle or have already found ourselves in that world now and and it's too late to rethink the decision because that's where we are. Paul says we must live as if we're not married. Now, there is a very dangerous statement. Boy, you talk about taking something out of context. I take that line out of context. I can go some really bad places with that line. Paul isn't asking us to abandon our spouse or to ignore them for the sake of the gospel. What he is saying, I think, is clear enough. He's saying in terms of our affections and our priorities, we have to be willing to follow Christ's commands without allowing our marital commitments to stand as an excuse for failure to obey. We can't use our wife's needs or our husband's needs as an excuse not to follow Christ. That's the meaning of live as if you're not married. People use as an excuse for their inability to keep up with their faith. They say, I can't because, and the next thing out of their mouth has to do with their family or their spouse particularly. That's a reality of being married. Paul says, to the extent possible, we can't let that happen or we're working against our own best interests in the long run. Our wife or our husband is happy, but what about the Lord? If the Lord asks us to devote our life to serving him in a dangerous way, overseas location, for example, do we say yes or no? If we would have said yes, but we say no because we know our wife would have difficulty living under those circumstances, then we're failing to do what God expects and we're violating this principle of Scripture. If the answer is yes, the answer is yes. Live as though you were not married. We must be willing to say yes to him even if we are married, even if we have children, even if they're going to be in harm's way with us, even if they might catch diseases of one kind or another. The answer is yes. We can't use our marital life as an excuse to say no to something that we know the answer is yes to, or vice versa. That's the price you pay for marrying in these distressing times. That's the price of carrying a wife or a husband in shortened times. 
Now, again, the point Paul has made, and he's been very careful at every point in this conversation to emphasize he is saying this out of regard for their life, out of a desire to show them a better way, not as a command. He's been very careful. I want to keep reiterating that, too. But we need to be sober about thinking of these things through and being sure that we're following the Lord and not following our flesh. And as he says, following the world, paying attention to the world as opposed to paying attention to the Lord. That's how Paul explains the logic of his advice in verses 32 through 34. He says he wants us to be free of concern, which is the concern that naturally comes when we have a spouse. And that's true, by the way, even if your spouse is a believer. If you have a believing spouse, as I hope you do, you're still going to find times when the spouse's desires are contrary to the Lord's. By the way, it doesn't just come as a matter of these negative things as well. I've seen the same and probably more often this issue come up from the side of wants as opposed to the side of concerns. Someone who wants to keep the big house and the big job and the big car and the big this and the big that. And whatever those things are cause a certain lifestyle choice that goes with them. And that lifestyle choice then takes so much time and energy. And at some point, perhaps the Lord convicts the heart of one member of the family and says, you know, you don't need those things. They're going to burn up. You're investing in stuff that doesn't matter to me. Meanwhile, I've got something that you should be investing in and that will have eternal reward. But then the person says, yeah, but if I do that, my spouse, they love this house. They love this car. They can't move from here. They can't accept that change in their lifestyle. They're not prepared for that kind of sacrifice. I can't do that to them. They won't let me do it. We just ran head on into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We just ran right into the issue Paul's dealing with. Now what are we going to do with that? Maybe you shouldn't marry if you're not up to that task. If you can handle this, though, then make the right choice. Bring your wife with you. Bring your husband with you if it's, if it's an issue with a husband's failing to follow the Lord. And as you do, trust God to bring their heart to where it needs to be. But don't say no to the Lord. Now, if the husband or the wife won't go with you in light of that, that's when it gets really challenging. And I think Paul's point is you can't abandon your husband and your wife for this. You still have to keep that commitment. So at some point, if they're not walking with the Lord like you need to walk with the Lord, you're going to find yourself held back from answering the Lord's call because you still have to be bound with your wife or your husband. And as a result, you're paying some penalty. You're not running the race as well as you could. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but it carries risks. Marriage is a beautiful thing, but it carries demands. And it's not all roses and cake and happy thoughts. We need to be sober about that. So this principle of serving Christ, free from divided attention, is the concern Paul is approaching here in this discussion of marriage. But also, this goes beyond marriage. Even if you are not married, look at verse 30. Paul says, you cannot allow the sorrows of the world, your disappointments in life. None of those things can become an excuse for not serving God fully. Because in Paul's day, a Christian could suffer all kinds of sorrow that had nothing to do with marriage as a result of their faith. In Corinth alone, the church was starting to experience the kind of suffering that comes with being a man or woman who would not eat meat sacrificed to idols, which we'll study next week in the next chapter. Because as they took that stand in the culture, they were being ostracized from the ability to earn a living. So it's never just about one thing. It's about a principle that says you're going to suffer for your faith. Don't let that impact your willingness to obey. Paul says, if you have sorrows, you have to continue serving Christ as if you don't have any. I don't care how heartbroken you are over something in your life, whether that's financial, familial, something in your family, or your health, or your disappointments in career, or whatever it is, get over it and serve Christ. Those things are not excuses for not getting up every morning. They are not excuses for not reading your Bible. They are not excuses for being away from church. They're not excuses for anything. We're all suffering sorrows at different levels all the time. That's the sinful state of the world we live in. We get that. Serve Christ. Serve Christ. 
Don't let it stop you. And of course, on the flip side of the scale, Paul says, if you're living in luxury and comfort, don't pursue life with a concern for your possessions. You can't allow the pursuit or, more importantly for many of us, the maintenance of our lifestyle stand in the way of serving Christ. Nothing we have is more important than that. So if we have to sell our house, we have to sell our car, we have to move to a cheaper neighborhood. You know, there's folks out there that have concerns over the education of their children, as we all do, and they have to afford a lifestyle that lets their kids go to the best schools. That's not more important than serving Christ. God will take care of your kids. God will make sure they are educated in the way they need to be. God will ensure that they get the the right environment for whatever he plans to do with them. Raise them in the Lord. They'll be okay. But don't let that become your excuse not to serve Christ. Remember the words of Christ in Matthew 1921. Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, that was a test that he put before a rich man who was claiming he had everything locked up and tight and ready to go to heaven. And he says, what do I lack? And Jesus said, well, here's one thing you could do. And you know what the man's response to that was, right? The next verse. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Why was he grieving? Because he just discovered he can't make it to heaven. But did you notice it wasn't enough for him to change? He went away unhappy. He was willing to accept Jesus' truth and keep his possessions rather than get rid of them and satisfy the test. It was an evidence of a heart that didn't believe. You can't allow any affection in this life to do that to you. Whether family, comforts, lifestyle, any of that, don't let it be an excuse to the call of God. Every lifestyle decision we make impacts our obedience. Every decision we make for where we spend our time and money and effort, all of that is on the line. So to summarize, we have every right to take a spouse. We have every right to have a family. If we do so, we must give them the required time and attention. We cannot forego that commitment. We must hold to that commitment. But neither should we be naive about how these choices will impact our service to Christ. And Paul, speaking from experience, counsels that if we still have a choice concerning marriage, we ought to give serious consideration, at least for a time, to the possibility that a single life is the best way to go in light of the present circumstances. Finally, for the chapter, in the principle of remaining as we are, he addresses one final issue of marriage in the church. In verses 36 through 40, Paul says, But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now, this passage is unnecessarily confusing. And the reason it's unnecessarily confusing is because of the poor choice of English words used to translate the original Greek, at least in the case of my Bible version, because in the original Greek, the word daughter does not appear. It's not in the text at all. And if you have a King James or an NIV or a New King James, you're getting this correct. Because in your versions, they don't put the word daughter in there, which is the way it should be. In mine, the NASB, for some reason, they did. There's some dispute over the words that could be implied, but I don't think so. I think we're talking about a man and his fiance, not a man and his daughter. Remember, in Paul's day, a marriage began with a betrothal, which we would call an engagement. But 
in that day, unlike today, the engagement was much more solemn, much more lasting, much more permanent, and it could not be easily broken. Not like today. So Paul's addressing a situation in which a man is currently betrothed to a virgin. A virgin in their world is the same as a woman who is waiting to be married because women didn't have sex before they were married in that day, nor should they now. But the fact is it was more likely to be true than it is today. So they use the word virgin interchangeably with an unmarried woman. So he's saying you've got a man who's betrothed to his fiance, to an unmarried woman. Now he's heard Paul's teaching. He's come to faith, let's say. And he's waiting for the marriage day. They're still in that betrothal period. And it's dawned on him now that maybe he shouldn't be married after all because of the words of Paul's teaching. They have not committed one flesh yet, though. So they're not married in a sense in which there's no opportunity for separation. The question then becomes, should I go through with the marriage or remain single? And Paul gives a very sensitive, delicate response. First, he says, if you believe, man, if you believe you are acting in a dishonoring way to this woman, and he says, assuming she's of marrying age, because sometimes people got betrothed very early and it took them years before they got to the point of marriage. But he says, if you're already at the point where marriage could take place and you feel it's dishonoring to her to walk away, then he says, you should go through with the marriage. You're not sinning. But on the other hand, he says, if a man can pass three tests, then he is in a position to forego this marriage and remain single, serving the Lord from that point forward. First, the tests begin this way. First, the man must be able to stand firm in his own heart. What Paul means is he has to be sure this is a conviction brought by the Lord. That the Lord himself, speaking to this man's heart, has given him this command. This man is not trying to impress anyone. He's not trying to appear pious. This isn't some effort on his part to impress Paul or anyone in the church. He's been convicted. And that manner of conviction is reflected in his faith-led decision to remain single. He's prepared for the life of singleness that comes thereafter. He's convicted of it. So in other words, he can't use this as an excuse to dump Sally because he prefers Mary. He's saying, I don't want anyone. Otherwise, he should go through with the commitment he made. First point. Second point, he has to understand he's under no constraint. The word of God does not require him to forego marriage. He's not doing this like he's being forced by God. Neither does any man dictate his will. Paul isn't requiring it. So the choice here is made in freedom, not as a result of somebody forcing it. And then thirdly, he says the man has authority over his own will concerning this matter. The question here is whether the man has made promises or entered into agreements concerning this marriage, which are legally binding. And if he has, then he is no longer over his own will concerning this matter. He has an obligation to do something. He must keep that obligation. See the point? If you're not free to make this choice, then you can't pretend you are. And if the covenant had included a dowry and a payment to the bride's father and the like, then he's obligated to go through with this bargain at this point. He can't retreat. That would be a divorce under legal terms, and he can't divorce. So he's bound by any previous commitment. So if it's a conviction in his heart, he's not doing it out of some forced requirement, and he has the freedom to make this decision, then Paul says, you may do so if he passes these tests. And then likewise, if the man cannot pass these tests, he must go through with the marriage. And if he does, then he is not sinning. It's not an issue of right and wrong in terms of the marriage. It's a choice between good and better. You notice that Paul says it is between verse 38. He says it is between doing well if you do one and doing better if you do the other. And then likewise, Paul flips the coin over. In light of the social constraints, he says a woman who is now without a husband, widowed. In Paul's day, 
If you were an unmarried woman, a young woman who had never been married, your dad had all the authority. Your dad chose your husband. The groom's father set the wedding date. So you had nothing to say about whether you got married or not. So Paul doesn't even address that person. Did you notice? He never turns the coin over and says to the virgin, here's what I tell you to do. Because they legally had no authority anyway. Because only a woman who had been married and now widowed was truly free in that culture to make a decision concerning marriage. At that point, for the first time in her life, she could decide whether to go forward into a new marriage or whether to remain unmarried. She's no longer under her father's authority, and now she's free from her first husband's authority. So she's the one and only time in her life she has this choice. And to that moment, Paul says she has the choice. She can remain free or she can be remarried. And he says he thinks she'll be happier If she doesn't remarry, he's speaking, of course, about what he's always been talking about. That is the present distress. So if a widow chooses to remain unmarried, he's suggesting she will benefit by her ability to serve Christ more freely, just as we have said. By the way, women historically have carried a disproportionate burden in marriage in terms of what it does to their time, what it does to their freedoms. So Paul is, I think, making the point here that this is your one and best chance in life to be totally unfettered in in serving God. Think carefully about whether you want to take all the burdens of caring for a husband again back on your shoulders in light of that distress. We all get that, right? Even today, even with our largely, mostly equal culture, it's still true. Paul says he believes he has the Spirit of God directing him to state these things, that a man should not leave his wife, that they should remain together, and that if they can remain apart, that is a better state. I find his ending statement here wonderfully ironic. Paul says, I think I have the Spirit of God. You think so, Paul? You know, we're still studying your writings 2,000 years later. I certainly hope you did. But it's interesting to me. Paul senses he's on the right track, but he qualifies his advice. He wants to make sure this didn't come directly from Christ. Nevertheless, I think it's a good idea. It's my opinion. He sensed he was teaching the way God preferred that he did. And, of course, now that it's in Scripture, we know that this is what God wanted. It's all according to the Lord's wishes. But this is a fitting postscript, I think, for the entire discussion of marriage. We may not know exactly what we are to do in a particular situation. We may not always have the clarity of what God's call is for us in our life. I mean, if the Apostle Paul can end a statement like this by saying, I I think I'm saying what God wants me to say. Well, then I think it's evident we will all find ourselves from time to time in positions where we're not exactly clear on whether we're doing what God wants. We think we are. We're not sure. And that's a fitting way to understand all of this advice. We may not know if we are to marry. We may not know who we are to marry. We are married. We may not know how to concern ourselves with our marriage. We may not always know how to handle difficult choices in life in light of our marriage. But in the end, we can trust that the Spirit of God, who lives in every believer, is actively working to lead us into righteousness. We can turn to the Spirit. We can search our hearts. We can make decisions. Like Abraham, even, we can take a step and God can direct us to the right place. But it's about listening. It's about receiving what God has for us. It's about concerning ourselves with these things. I find as my heart aligns with what God's heart shows in Scripture, I find myself more and more doing what His will is, even without the words in my head to tell me what that is. This is the power of the Spirit to direct us. So, if we say no to Christ because of temptations, we're wrong. If we say yes to Christ and it causes stress in our marriage, we understand that's a reality of our marriage. In the end, though, we're following Him as best we can because the days are short. Father, thank you, Lord, for marriage, for our spouses or our future spouses or for the ones we've had in the past and we now have their memories to hold us until we see them again. We thank you, Father, for the instruction that reminds us of the sober and serious need to commit and hold to those commitments. 
We remind, we were reminded as well of the sacrifice that comes with marriage. For many, Father, that will be the right course. And you bless marriages every day. And give us the strength to serve in those marriages properly. But I also ask, Father, that you would give at least some to those you choose the heart to remain single, for they can be so, become such powerful instruments in your hand, and they can do so much good for the work of Christ in the days that are left. We deny no one the love that marriage offers. We deny no one the opportunity to enjoy its fruits. But for those who feel so called and have the courage to follow, we ask, Father, you would strengthen them to that purpose and make them an instrument that would glorify your name before the nations. Help us all to strengthen them as well and to encourage them along that path. Thank you, Lord, for a little church that holds to your word in a, in a mighty way. Let us continue in this through the season that, that we're in and onward into next year. And I pray, Father, you bring us some more folks as you choose to so that we may share what we have with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.